This pastor decided to skip church one Sunday morning and go play golf. He told his assistant he wasn't feeling well. He drove to a golf course in another city so nobody would know him. He teed off on the first hole. A huge gust of wind caught his ball, carried it, in an, carried it an extra hundred yards, and dropped it right in the hole for a 400-meter hole-in-one. An angel looked at God and said, what did you do that for? God smiled and said, who's he going to tell? <laughs> the Lord is watching. Okay. We are... That was actually a story about Rob Fick. But anyway, um, I thought I'd just tell it. So we are going through our series, our walkthrough of the book of Philippians. And I'm ending off today. Today we are landing the series. I will not cover the whole of chapter 4, but I will get a few verses into it. Um, and I trust that it's going to be helpful for you. And uh, if you take notes, yeah, we're doing chapter 4. And if there was a title for chapter 4, it would be In the Lord. Does that sound spiritual enough? In the Lord, that's what I would call it if it were me making a title for this message, and it is. So, going from verse 1, let me first read this verse. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Okay, so there's three times in four verses that Paul uses that phrase, in the Lord. He uses it first over there, stand firm. Hallelujah. You can actually, come on, you, you're allowed to talk in church, just not to each other. So, stand firm in the Lord. Then there's another phrase he uses just after that, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. And the second phrase is this. Agree. Agree in the Lord. And the last one, rejoice. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Okay. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. There's clearly something he's trying to get through here. And uh, just to start at verse 1, because there's some interesting stuff there, uh, before we get to in the Lord, uh, I want to read this. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends. For you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now, he's speaking like, if you've ever taught someone, some of you maybe haven't taught someone in a, in a school or a professional sense, but maybe you've been a part of someone's life where you've helped them to grow through something. And they've come through it, and at the end of the thing, they're better, they're stronger people, they know what they're doing, they've got a plan for their lives. And, uh, and it's an awesome thing as a teacher, and I know because I have been a teacher, to see your students finish school or finish a grade and go on to do amazing things. And you can look back and say, well, I don't like to brag, but I had a part in, the, in that. You know, I wasn't it, but I was a little part of that. And it's almost like Paul is saying that as someone who's sitting back and he's now towards the end of his life. He's about to, that's, that's about to be it for him. He's in jail. Um, and the next thing that's going to happen to him that's going to be a big event is that his 
going to be beheaded. Okay, so he's now sitting at the end of his life and he's saying, I'm sitting here. And it is just to think of you guys, just to see what you've become. It just makes my heart so proud. It makes me swell with pride. I'm just so overjoyed by that. And, and that's the kind of terminology he's using. He says, the joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now, that crown that he's speaking of is an athletic crown. Now, we know we're talking about Greece. We know where the Olympic Games started and originated in Greece. Uh, Now, in the Olympic Games of old, there wasn't such a thing as silver and gold and uh, bronze place. There wasn't first, second, and third place. They competed for this, the crown. The crown wasn't made of something that was really expensive. The crown was made of olive branches. That's it. It wasn't something rich. There's someone who, who got it. We're talking about 2,000 years ago now. We're talking about a long time ago. And they would run their races, mostly in the nude, just to give you a visual aid that can help you. They would run their races. They would compete in their athletics. And, and there was no reward of any kind of significance but this crown. And that crown was the absolute pinnacle of achievement that any athlete could, could, could ever receive. And so it was, it was totally coveted, although it wasn't worth much in terms of cash. It was the thing that every single athlete strove to get. And Paul says, you're my crown. I've run my race. I'm at the end now. And when I look back, you guys are it. I just love the way that you've grown, the way that the church has grown and matured. It's a beautiful picture that he uses. Now, I'm going to move on to these three in the Lord's. And the first one, as I said, is stand firm in the Lord. Paul uses that specific phrase lots of times throughout the New Testament. He's always saying, stand firm. You know, when you put on the armor of God, stand firm. In the different and various churches that he speaks to, uh, or writes to, should I say, uh, in his various stages of his life, he often uses that phrase, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. When everything's come and gone, stand firm. And it's a part of a wonderful concept that he refers to also often, which is this. Christ in you, you in Christ. Make sense? It's one of those things that's possible to be both things. And the way that helps me to understand that is that. My Jesus Russian dolls. Okay, I see you almost as the medium Russian doll, and and Christ is in you. He's like the smaller doll, and Christ and you are in Christ, like He's around you, and and Paul uses those phrases often. In Christ, you're in Christ. Christ is in you. They have very different meanings, and he's using them in different ways. But it's a it's a wonderful thing that he's saying. And so when he's talking about the stand firm in the Lord, he's talking about the exact same thing. You in Christ. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance of being in Christ, we're going to find out in a second. Let's read this verse. And this comes from another one of Paul's letters to a church, which actually Darby was mentioning the church that he wrote to. Let me read this to you because this is fascinating. Brothers, this is him writing now in the beginning of, of his Letter to the Corinthian church. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. In other words, think of what you were before you got saved, before you put your faith in Christ, before you became uh, someone who followed Jesus. Not many of you were wise by human standards. 
Not many were, any, were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that, this is why he chose the weak things. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ. Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Okay, so there's quite a lot of words there, but the point is this. He's saying we are in Christ. If you know God this morning, then you fit into a lot of those underlined words. I'm sorry to say, you probably thought more of yourself, but it means you probably are foolish, weak, lowly, despised, and are not. I know I am, and I know I was. And who knows why God chooses the people that he chooses? Well, that's why. So that no one can boast before him. It didn't have anything to do with me. It didn't have anything to do with my superior intellect or my bank account or how much stuff I had. There was nothing about me that made me desirable to God. But he called us. These are the things, these low points that actually qualify us to be used by God. So, the point of this whole passage is that being in Christ can't be earned. It can't be bought. Not by being good enough or rich enough or having a high enough IQ or good degrees or anything like that. Being in Christ cannot be earned. Now, salvation is accessible to everyone. See, if it could be earned, there would be people that couldn't qualify. If it cost a certain amount of money, well, the gospel wouldn't be able to reach a significant part of this world. If it relied on your intellect, well, there's a big portion of the world that just wouldn't make it. And so isn't it awesome that this thing of salvation is accessible for absolutely everybody? Is that good news? I think it's awesome news. I'm glad to be one of the, the lowly for this. So you, you and I can be grateful for that because it gives us the opportunity to be in Christ. But here's the thing that being in Christ is so, uh, what makes it so amazing is that you get something from being in Christ. You get something from being in a group. I once, just thinking about the story now, you get a, you get a certain courage from being in a group of people. They actually call it something. It's called mob mentality. I don't know if you've ever seen that. You, you can do things in a group of people that you would never do if you were on your own. I mean, you look at all these things that were happening in Egypt quite a while ago, and well, that are happening even on the fees must fall stuff. Now, you get a group of people together who have a common vision and a goal and a purpose, and they will do crazy things. They will burn things. They will throw things. They will throw rocks at policemen, they will drive stupidly, they will do a bunch of things. But if you take the group away from the individual, you just see if he's going to throw a bottle at a policeman just by himself. I can tell you now it's not going to happen because there's this thing of being in a group, finding security in that and making that your thing. Now, I remember one New Year's, I was visiting Cape Town, I was living in Joburg at the time, and I visited my cousin. And in Cape Town, you get, you get gangsters, all right, and where we lived, there were some of them, and um, and uh, they, they were looking for trouble. It wasn't us, I promise. 
And uh, we were on our side of the fence. It was a Vibercrete fence. It wasn't too high. And they came in a group. And don't you hate this? The guys in the front are bigger. And they shout. And, and, and they, what, what's the word you would use? They? Antagonizing. That's a very proper word, yes. They're shouting the odds. They're flicking about your mom and all sorts of things. And, um, but there's always the guy at the back. The littlest oak. And he's shouting more than anyone else. He's louder than anyone else. And he's talking about your mother more than anyone else does. And I think, yo, let me just take this group away from you. And then we'll see how big your mouth is. You know, that's the kind of thing. But you get this courage in a group. But it works the other way as well. You see, you get that stupid courage in a group. But you also get an amazing security and a comfort and a courage in a positive way from being uh, inside a community or inside a group. And it's an amazing thing, this. And, and, and for me, it really speaks to the confidence that we have being in Christ. This is what Paul is saying. This is, this is an amazing thing that we get to take advantage of. We can be in Christ. We can find our security and our identity in, in that, not in stuff, not in how well you're doing in life. But our genuine confidence and security comes when we can see that we are a small part in a big God's hands and plan. Isn't that awesome? We find security in that. That's what it means to be in the Lord. But here's the thing. Now Paul's talking about stand firm in Christ. The imagery he's using is very battle. It's very fight uh, oriented. It's, it's, he's, taught, he's using sort of fighting terminology there. And he says, stand firm in the Lord. That picture would look like this. Okay? Maybe less six-packs, but mostly that sort of thing. The picture is this. You are in Christ, but bad stuff's still going to happen. You are in Christ, but you are still going to be tempted. You are in Christ, but the world is going to come against you. You are in Christ, but that doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means you're still going to make mistakes. Life is still going to happen to you. Things are going to be tempting you. Seduction is a real thing, even for Christians. Temptation. So he's saying this, and he's talking to the church in Philippi, remember, but he's talking as much to them as he is to us. He's saying, stand firm. You know, if, if, if you go to the beach and there's big waves there, you don't walk in and just like, hey, I mean, you'll be knocked right over and look like an idiot, and you'll be on YouTube, and it'll go viral, and it'll be embarrassing for everyone for all time. You're not just going to stand there like some silly oak. You, you're going to stand. You know what I mean? I mean, if there's a big wave coming, and it's about to break here, you're going to brace yourself. You're going to stand properly. And that's the imagery he's using. He's saying, even though stuff's coming against you, stand firm. Do not retreat. Don't take a step backwards. Just stand firm because the stuff is coming against you. But where are you? Where are you located? You are in? You are in Christ. Stand firm. You know, and I know that there's groups of people that I've been with, and when you're with them, it's easy to do the wrong thing. You can get into a group of people, and man, doing the wrong thing is just easy because that whole group is just in that way of thinking and doing things. Have you ever been in a group like that? 
And isn't it true that you can also be in a group and doing the right thing is easy? Sometimes when you're in a connect group, well, it's easy to pray. It's easy to trust God. It's easy to do things. It's easy to read your, you know, your Bible when you're in a small group or when you're in church or when you're in youth group or when you're wherever. So you, you can get two groups of people that can influence you and you can be in those groups and you can want to do the right thing or the wrong thing. But our safety against temptation is to be in the Lord. Sometimes when something goes wrong, you say, man, that probably wouldn't have happened if I was with this group of people, or this wouldn't have happened if so-and-so was here with me. And we always think of it in terms of people that could be here with me. What Paul is saying is, don't forget that Christ is with you. Stand firm in the Lord. Because even if you stand and you stand alone, And you maybe wish that there was strength around you. Maybe you wish that you were in a group that could help you and support you. But that group's not there. Guess who is there? Christ. He's saying stand firm in the Lord. The church and individual Christians can only stand firm when they stand in Christ. You ready for point number two? Cool. Let's move on. Now this is verse two and three. I plead with, oh, these names, honestly. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to, to, uh, here's the thing, here's the point, to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, Uh, I need to think of some nicknames for these ladies. Now, Paul is clearly addressing a situation in the church. He has heard about bickering, arguing, fighting within the church. There was factions. Now, we don't know. There is so much about that verse we actually don't know. We don't have any clue who the ladies were. People have said maybe it was Paul's wife was one of them. That's honestly what people have said. They said, we're not sure. Maybe it's people whose homes the church used to meet in. But here's the bottom line. We actually don't know. We just know that there were two ladies, which took a long time to get to that conclusion because before they thought they were a man and a a woman, uh, but eventually they tracked it back and they could work out that it was two ladies. So then, then I ask you, my true companion, we do not know who Paul is talking about. He's talking to someone we don't know who. We think it might be Epaphroditus. Remember the people that the, the church in Philippi sent to him to help him? We think it might be him, but we're not sure. Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement. Who knows who Clement is? We just don't know. I mean, just in these two or three verses, there's a lot of like, who, what on earth is going on here? We don't know this. But what we do know is two important things. One is that it was two ladies. I think that's important. The other thing is not that. The other thing is this, Paul, from where he was, heard about this argument between two women in the church, and he saw it as important enough to write a letter to mobilize every single person that he knew in the church to make this thing go away. He saw it as that important. I mean, do people fight in churches? Unfortunately, they do. Do people argue? Yes. Do people say stupid things to people? Yes, they do. And it happens in all of our churches. And most of us would say, well, that's life. Move on. 
But Paul's, no, no, no. She doesn't see it like that. For him, this isn't just a matter of, hey, there's two ladies who aren't getting on. He's saying this is a problem in the church. This is division. This is something that's, you know, there's a little leaven, a little yeast works through the whole dough. And he understands that principle. And he's saying this might be fine for now, but when it spreads, it's unhealthy, it's destructive. You need to sort this out. And so he's writing to the church there and he's saying, sort this stuff out. Don't get in your little groups and talk about and make sides and tell each other who's right and who's wrong and why is this person so bad. Sort it out. Make a plan. And I'm giving you the same advice Paul said to them. If this is you, we have to fiercely protect the unity in our church. Not just in our church, in the church. See, because sometimes we can be so high and mighty about our church. Our church is doing okay. But that church down the road, oh my goodness, did you hear about that lady? Well, that's a problem. We cannot be people who engage in that kind of nonsense. Ever. Because it discredits the unity in the body of Christ. And Paul saw it as of utmost importance to address this, to make it stop. And I think we need to have the same way of thinking as he did. William Barclay, he's, a, he's a, quite a well-known um, Bible commentator, commenter. And he said this, A quarreling church is no church at all, for it is one from which Christ has been shut out. No one can be at peace with God and at variance with others. We need to think about that. Because I think a lot of us say, well, we can be at peace with God and we can still fight a little bit, as long as it's not violent or saying it can't happen. They cannot coexist. And there's other portions of Scripture that echo that very clearly. So, Paul obviously had an incredibly high view and value of unity within the church, and we must too. Now, the other interesting thing to note is, like I said, we don't know a whole lot about this, but we hear about two people, Clement, or three people, the two ladies, and Clement. That's it. That's the mention they get in the whole book. That's the mention they get in the Bible. Their names have gone down in the history of the world now, for 2,000 years, and all we know about them is this. The two ladies bickered and fought. They brought division. That's it. That's how they will be known for all of time. And Clement was a peacemaker. That's how he will be known throughout eternity. No one knows what else he did. We don't. But here's an interesting thing to think about. If your life could be summed up in one sentence, what could it be? This is just something to think about. Because for them, that was their one sentence in the page of the Bible. What would your friends and family say if it was you? Peacemaker, peacebreaker, rebel, gossip, kind. Who knows? But if you just got one sentence in a page of history... What would people say about you? That's just something to think about. So, still thinking about agreeing in the Lord. There's something that comes to my mind, which is one of the amazing things about people, our ability to unite under a leader. 
a leader can gather people who are different in every single way, who are big, small, old, young, rich, poor, but a leader, leader can gather these. And, and we know leaders like this. For those of you who don't know, that's Pastor Brian Houston of Hillsong Church. And of course, Nelson Mandela. But the interesting thing, and this is what I'm saying, is leaders, people will come together and they will unite. They will forget their petty differences and unite under a strong leader. And we've seen that so many times throughout history, and it's happening even right now in our world in many cases. But if you take that leader away, the group begins to fall apart. The natural thing that you've got when you take that leader out of the situation, and we can even use the one we know probably the best of the African National Congress, you take that leader away, you get fighting, you get factions, you get division, you get jealousy, you get difficulty. Because where we were all united under one thing, that thing's gone. Now our unity is compromised. Now, I'm getting to a point here. you just got to stick with me for a second. Because it's the same for the church. Our togetherness and our unity as a group of completely different people here in this building is only possible because we have Christ as our leader. If you look around, you're going to see something. You're going to see people of very different background, social status, age, IQ. You're going to see that here, right in this building. And we come together because we have a common leader. We unite under that leader. We agree in the Lord under that leader. We don't unite under a person, under some person that leads anything like that. We don't. Because the reality is people come and people go. But we don't unite under that. We unite under the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul instructs us to stand firm in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. And then lastly, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. So remember, guy in prison, not doing well, end is close. And this book has often been summarized as a book of joy, written from jail. But that's the attitude and the spirit that he has. And I've said this a lot over the last few weeks because this is such a major theme in the book of Philippians, but I want to say it again. It bears repeating. The one thing you need to learn about joy is that it is not linked to things and circumstances. If you don't get that, joy is always going to elude you. It is not linked to stuff and it is not linked to circumstances. We've all experienced and seen this. We've seen that you can be incredibly wealthy and successful in the eyes of the world and you can be depressed and lonely and heartbroken and bitter. And you can be absolutely, nothing's going on in your life, but you can have incredible joy that just passes everything. Someone that's had almost no hardships and difficulty in life can be depressed and unhappy. And on the other hand, someone that's gone through more hardship than any one person should go through can be unbelievably joyful. 
The conclusion is joy is not linked to stuff and to circumstances. There was a very well-known guy. I, I wonder if you've ever heard his name before. His name is Captain Robert Scott. He was a British naval officer. And uh, it was about 100 years ago now. They were busy discovering places, and it was his mission in life to discover and to get to the South Pole. As you can imagine, the South Pole is frighteningly cold. They never had the technology we have now in terms of what we can wear in our vehicles and that sort of thing, and food and all that, all that sort of thing. So when they went exploring, they seriously went exploring. I mean, they had to take everything with them. They couldn't fly in things. Yeah, they couldn't fly out if they were going through difficult times. And so here's this guy, Robert Scott. I have no idea which one he is. I suspect he's someone. Anyway, he, uh, he took him and, fi- him and four other guys, so the five of them took this team, and they were, they were sort of racing against the Norwegians at the time who also wanted to discover... Uh, the South Pole or get to the South Pole uh, before anyone else. So they were kind of um, going, I don't want to say against each other, but they sort of were. And, um, and uh, the Norwegians set out and they failed. They never had enough food supplies or fuel or whatever. And they came back and then they tried and they failed. And uh, the Norwegians tried and then they tried. And, and he, he had two attempts at this. And the second time he took these guys and they made it. Now, I'm not talking about something that takes a few weeks. I'm talking about something that takes three years. Okay, this isn't like, like, hey, let's go to the South Pole. Uh, See you now now. This is like, I'll see my kids when they're three years older. Okay, it's a hectic thing that he did. And you've got to take a lot. There's a lot of preparation involved. And it took him a significant amount of time. But at the end, they reached the South Pole. And guess what they discovered? The Norwegians were there first. So that's a really tough, bitter pill to swallow. And this photo was reportedly taken just after they discovered that. So if you look very carefully at their faces now that you know that, they are not happy. They are bleak with life. Uh, They got there and it had already been done. There was nothing. And not only that, they found out, well, not they found out, they, they, they were dangerously low on supplies. So now they've trekked all the way in. Now you've got to trek all the way out. And, uh, and they were a little bit worried. And um, they were going through quite a difficult circumst- set of circumstances, heading back to, to the docks. But this is what he said. He wrote letters. This was what he did. He, he wrote letters, and this was in one of the letters he wrote to someone. We're pegging out in a very comfortless spot. We are in a desperate state. Feet frozen, etc. No fuel and a long way from food. But here's the amazing thing. It would do your heart good to be in our tent, to hear our songs and cheery conversation. Isn't that amazing? I probably shouldn't tell you that it was just after this that all five of them died. Um, They never made it back. That's a true story. (laughs) You can look that up. It's a bitter ending to the story. But that's actually what happened. So when he was saying that, you know, like my feet are frozen, there's no fuel, it makes it... Well, they all died. Uh, It was a very hectic thing that happened. They couldn't make it back. But don't you think it's amazing there? It would do your heart good to be in our tent. See, the secret that Captain Scott got is this. Happiness doesn't depend on things or places, but on people. Your happiness is so contingent on people. If we were the right person... Nothing else matters. You can weather things. 
If you're not with the right person, nothing can make up for their absence. And here's the truth. And this is what we're getting to in what Paul was saying. In the presence of Jesus Christ, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In the presence of the Lord, the greatest friend possible is with us. Nothing can separate us from Him. Therefore, nothing can separate us from our joy. It's an amazing thing, you see, because we think about this as, as, as though we need people and stuff and things. But what Paul is saying in just these few verses is that Christ is with you. Be in Christ. Stand firm. Agree in Christ under a common leadership. And of course this, rejoice in the Lord because He's always with you. And we always want to rely, I think, on people. We want to rely on someone to cheer us up. Rejoice in the Lord. He's there with you through absolutely everything that you can go through. That is the end. But we will pray now. Like I said, it's only four verses out of 21. There's a lot in the book. I would encourage you to read it. Just the last chapter be a good thing to do. But I want to pray for us now. You know, the thing about sermons, messages, church, and if we all had to be honest, even sometimes we say, that was good. And then by Monday morning, what was that about again? That's okay, I do it too. Even of my own messages. So here's the important thing. Appropriate something this morning. Because in everything that I've said, there might just be one line. There might just be something there that you can take away and say, I'm going to let that change the way that I think and the way that I behave. There is always a takeaway. It, no one's going to ask you to remember the sermon, to recite the sermon, to preach the sermon. But if something from the Word of God and the Word this morning can speak to your heart. I want to encourage you to do this at every level, at every meeting that you go to. Just take one thing and let it chisel who you are and let you become more like Christ. Does that make sense? So this message, I mean, from these verses is like a, just a shotgun shell that's just gone everywhere and who knows where it lands. And, but I do believe that there are people here that need to hear this stuff. And so we trust God and His Spirit to do what needs to be done in people's hearts. Can we stand? as we pray together.